You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Before we dive into the Gospel of Luke, I'd like to just invite you to pray with me. So let's, uh, let's bow. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Lord, thank you for just, um, just the element of your provision. Just, just even your thoughtfulness and your goodness and your kindness to us as you um, have preserved this gospel for so long so that it could be in our hands this evening as we study it and as we seek to catch a glimpse of, um, of you and all your work and all of your splendor and all of your love for us. And um, Lord, I'm just... Uh, I'm just caught up even in the wait in this moment of um, the, the great plans that you have for each of us. Uh, the picture that you see of each of us as you planned since before the foundations of the world for the message of the gospel to be preached to us. Um, so God, I'm just I'm reminded of that, reminded of the weight and the heaviness of that. Lord, help us to take seriously what your word says. God, I just even now just ask God that you would... Um, just really be in our midst, that your spirit would really speak to our hearts. Lord, I know that there's some of us here, as we come in, we're skeptical, not sure of you, not sure of the scriptures, not sure of this thing we call church. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would just bust through that garbage and just speak to our hearts. I also know, God, that there's some of us who just come into the room and just weighed down with the cares of this life, as Eric talked about earlier in his introduction. Um, help us to help us to catch a picture, a fresh picture of the hope that we have in you, um, Lord. Um, I just admit that that there's there's just nothing that we need more than you, and we need you to come and to speak to us. So, God, I pray that you would remove me, um, so to speak. Um, God, I pray that you would remove me, re- remove any of my um, hindrances. God, please, please do not let me be a hindrance to what you would say to our hearts tonight through your word. So, God, I pray that you would take the meditations of my heart, the things that I've been thinking about this week, um, the things that I've been just digesting, and I pray that you would take the words of my mouth, the things that I'm about to say, and God, I pray that you would make them, cause them to be acceptable um, in your sight, honoring to you. Um, help my words to do good to your people this evening. And so God, I pray those things, remembering that you are our rock and our redeemer. You are the one who comes to save and you are our sure and firm foundation. So God, I'm just remembering those things as we go into this passage. Pray that you be here powerfully. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Luke 21, starting in verse 37. Verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. The feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. We all make plans. When I was younger, I was a drywaller. I owned a, a sheetrocking company. Did a number of different building projects throughout the years. Um, did sheetrocking for 13 years. Well, about maybe 14 did residential and commercial, so we would do both hospitals and office buildings as well as homes and apartments. One of the things that always intrigued me was when you would show up kind of like day one of a building project, there would be a bunch of other contractors that would show up as well. You'd have your drywallers and your painters and your plumbers and your tile setters and your framers and your finished carpenters and some of them would show up at various different times throughout the job. Everybody would show up with their own set of plans rolled up underneath their arms. And if you were to spread all those plans out on a table, which a lot of guys would commonly do, there would be kind of a centralized location where all the plans would be laid out and there would be ways that they all interchanged with each other. The, the thing that always, um, I don't know, I guess always got my attention was the fact that while you could take one individual set of plans and it would, it would, it would look like Greek to you, whereas another set of plans you might make sense of, every one of them had their own goals, and at the end of which, all of them would intersect at the same place, which was a completed building project, right? Completed set of apartments, completed home, or a completed office complex. Everybody that came to those jobs had plans. Without plans, those building projects would fail epically. And in fact, the building projects that we were a part of that were absolutely horrendous and difficult to be part of were the ones in which guys showed up and forgot their plans or didn't bring their plans or just flat out simply did not have a plan, right? We all make plans. All the way from uh, those of us in the room that are more in the moment, like my wife, She's more in the moment, and I'm thankful for her because for a guy like me who lives his life by bullet points and what seems like crazy plans, I need a person like Christy to offset my crazy dot-by-dot, moment-by-moment plan, right? But even my wife, who is more in the moment, still has a plan that she lives by. All of us live by plans, all the way from the most... Uh, the, all the way from, the, for, from, from the, those of us that are the, the largest procrastinators to those of us who obsess over the very next thing that we're going to do. We all plan one way or the other. Some of us even make plans for the plans we make. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> any, any others in the room? Uh, just me? Sheesh. Tough crowd tonight. 
and we premeditate, we obsess, we think about constantly, we spin over and over in our minds what we want, why we want it, what we will do to get it, how we will do what we need to do to get what we want. We all make plans. The question that I think each of us needs to ask, especially as we dive into this passage tonight, as we think about this theme of what it means to plan, we need to ask this question. What, what do our plans reveal about what we really want? What do your plans reveal about what you really want? What, 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 what do your plans reveal about the condition of your heart? What do your plans reveal inside of you? What longings and what desires creep up inside of you that your plans reveal for you? Think about the plans that you make. In what ways do the plans that you make either A, bring honor to the Lord, or B, bring dishonor to Him? What will you do when you realize that all of our best laid plans, whether good or bad, whether holy or unholy, all of our best laid plans, what will you do when you find that all of them intersect at the same place and that's the cross of Christ like, if there's one thing that I want to make sure that I communicate in our midst tonight is that there is no hope apart from the cross of Christ no hope if you're here and you've trusted in Christ you have great hope and this message will deeply encourage you as you look at the plan that Christ had for you even in the midst of all of our botched up plans. Think about how often do you plan to do things that are contrary to what the Lord wants for you? And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we've watched Jesus follow His carefully laid out plans. He's got His carefully laid out plan to seek and to save the lost, right? We've watched him perform miraculous things all the way from healing the sick, returning sight to the blind, casting out demons, preaching the gospel in the midst of intense persecution and opposition, making bold prophetic claims about the end of the world and his return and the destruction of Jerusalem. He's made these bold prophetic claims in the midst of this. It's all part of his plan, all part of his redemptive plan. While he's doing all of these things, he's staying ruthlessly focused on the cross that he is headed to. Back in chapter 9, we remember that Luke tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem like flint. There was nothing that was going to stop him from heading to Jerusalem to the cross so that he could pay the price so that you and I could be set free and redeemed from the presence and the penalty and the power of sin. This is where Jesus was headed and this is where Jesus is right now, following his plan, following his plan. This is the plan of God unfolding in front of us, unfolding in front of you and I. There is great hope to be found in the plan that you see Jesus working out on your behalf. When you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize just how deeply you and I have actually not just mistakenly sinned against God, but we've actually actively sinned against Him. We've made plans to sin against Jesus. And in the midst of His coming, 
And in the midst of our planning to sin against him and set ourselves up like enemies against him, he gave his life for us. He knew you so intimately and so deeply. He knows you so well. Knows you better than you know yourself. And yet he chooses to love you more than anybody else ever could. This has got to blow your mind. You think about this, this plan that Jesus made. As we enter into these final days of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth in this gospel, and Luke tells us this, he says, that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people would come to him. They came to him in the temple to hear him as the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. What's taking place here is that Jesus is following this predetermined, pre-thought out plan. This is a plan that began way back before the foundations of the earth ever were laid. Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays this out for us. I preach this all the time to those of you who are familiar. The fact that Jesus laid this plan out, some strange cosmic board meeting, Father, Son, Holy Ghost sitting around the table doing whatever they do in community together, which is a great argument for the fact that you and I should not subtract ourselves from community because when we do that, when we do that, we're not even mirroring or modeling the Father and the Son and the Spirit in community. They in community before the foundation of the earth, their community thought up a plan so that you and I could be saved. That was their plan from day one. And it wasn't just so that, so that Jesus would come and be like, man, I'm just going to die for whoever like, comes walking up to me or whatever. No, no, they made their list. Way back when. There was nothing that could derail the plan of God coming and preaching the gospel to you. Coming and dying on the cross for you. Even though he knew that you and I would live as his enemies. Even though he knew that our plans, the plans that we would follow, if left to ourselves, would be acts of war against him. This is what he does. This is what he does. He follows this predetermined plan towards the cross where he would become our ransom for sin. He spent his days teaching in the temple every day. I think that somehow Jesus knew what was going on in the background. I mean, it's been pretty obvious from the get-go, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, these quote-unquote godly people have always been opposing him from the beginning. Luke has already told us that they've been seeking how to take his life. I think he knew that, so he would spend his days in the temple teaching. Right? You see this picture of the Word who has become flesh, standing in the temple, perfectly preaching the Word. And people were hanging on his words. I still can't get away from the way that Luke writes that. And here he is, still in the temple, preaching daily, Preaching, preaching, preaching. Like the Holy Spirit is always preaching to your heart. The question is, is have you planned a way to hear from Him? You planned a way to hear from Him. Jesus is preaching in the temple day by day, and then He's spending His nights on the Mount of Olivet. I have a feeling, many other commentators have mentioned that the reason He didn't spend the night in Jerusalem is that if He did, it's a really good place to get stuck in the side with a knife, right? They're, they're plotting His death. The Mount of Olives was a safe place to be on the evenings. He could withdraw from the crowds of people, spend time in prayer, and get rested up for the next day and go back and preach some more. 
<clears throat> not everybody was hanging on his words, though. I already kind of referenced that. Not everybody was hanging on his every word. Luke tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Kind of interesting, they feared the people. So while Jesus is following his carefully predetermined, pre-laid out plan of salvation for you and for I, his enemies are plotting and scheming and planning to destroy him. And one scholar says this, he says, The evil intentions of Jesus' enemies show that even someone in a God-given place of leadership is capable of falling into grievous sin. The very men who should have been doing the most to worship Jesus and spread his gospel were plotting to destroy him. They were supposed to be getting ready for Passover, praising God for delivering his people and preparing to offer a sacrificial lamb for their sins. And instead, they were conspiring to murder the very Son of God. The thing about Jesus' enemies is they couldn't stand to look at him. They couldn't stand to hear him preach. They couldn't stand to hear his words. Like, just think about this for a minute, that, that, that when Jesus preached, when they heard Jesus' words being preached, it turned their stomachs so much that the only thing they could think about was not turning from their sins and trusting in Christ for salvation. The only thing they could turn, think about was, man, how can we shut this guy up? How can we stop him from preaching? How can we murder him? And they couldn't stand to hear him preach. They couldn't stand to see him in the temple every day. You remember the temple? This, this massive place that they loved so much, remember? If you've been following along, remember that it was like 150 foot taller than the rest of the city on top of a mount? Remember that it had this massive um, um, sculpture of, of, of the grapes and the vine bigger than a man? And they were proud of this place, man. They spent 50 plus years remodeling it. You imagine the amount of plans they had to remodel that temple. This temple was precious to them. And Jesus had come in and flipped the tables and was now standing there, occupying their place of authority and influence. Occupying their place of authority and influence. And they couldn't stand him. They just flat out could not stand Jesus. So they made plans to kill him. And if you study, if you study the story close enough, here's what you'll find. You'll find that they actually made these plans right all throughout our gospel. And while doing so, they capped it all. They shrouded it all with religious rhetoric. Man, like, like we need to kill Jesus. We need to do God a favor and take his son out. They actually believed that they were doing God a favor by plotting to kill the Son of God, by plotting to shut him up. Priests and the scribes, man, they made their murderous plans, right? And we all make plans. And I get it. I know what's probably happening deep within you right now because this is what happened in me as I studied. Man, I've never, I've never sat there and thought that I want to murder Jesus. I've never really done that. We all make plans. The reality is that our sinful patterns that we wake up to every single day is the same as making a plan to murder Jesus. Because the reality is this. At the end of my plan for sin, that's what murdered Jesus. Because it's the reason that he died. 
That means that I, just like you, still struggle with living as his enemy. Though he has died, he followed his plan and died and then was raised on the third day, signifying his power over Satan's sin in the grave. Right? It's the very power that you and I are united to. It's the very power that you and I get tapped into when we trust in Christ. In those moments, we share in the glory of his suffering as well as the glory of his empty tomb. Our sin is dead. Death no longer holds us. Sin doesn't hold us. Satan has no power over us. How do I know that? Because if you've trusted in Christ, none of those things had any power over Christ. Yet, yet, you and I, we oftentimes plan out our sin. I mean, you think about your premeditated plans to sin when someone hurts you. That word of gossip spoken, that lustful look taken, that angry word spoken, that, that bitterness um, cultivated inside of you, those are plans to sin and they are plans of war against the one who loved you and planned for your good. We all make plans. And the questions that you and I have got to ask are the same three questions that I try to pose to you all the way through this message. What do your plans reveal about what you really want? What do your plans reveal about the condition of your heart? Do your plans bring honor or dishonor to the Lord? Man, while Jesus followed his predetermined plan to come to this what I love to call this filthy sin soaked earth from his righteous holy spotless clean place in heaven when he followed that predetermined plan to come here and to walk this journey from birth to death perfectly to the cross all throughout his walking out of that journey, his enemies were always planning for his demise. Always. And the religious leaders planned to end his life, but they couldn't follow through with it in broad daylight, right? They were afraid of the people. Too many people hanging on his every word. They might riot and throw a fit if they did it at this point. The people that were there weren't ready to kill Jesus yet, even though some of the leaders were. So because of their fear of the backlash and the rioting, what were they to do? Couldn't murder him in cold blood and broad daylight quite yet, could they? Hey, remember the stories too, man. They argued with him publicly. Trying to get him hung up in some of his arguments. Trying to catch him in some death-deserving heresy. But they failed epically every time. And they sent spies recently, right, to buddy up with him, asking some questions. Hey, yo, Jesus, what do you think about paying the temple tax? What do you think, Jesus? Failed epically again, right? They were trying to get him in trouble with the government, where maybe he would get murdered by them instead of them having to do the dirty work. Kind of a passive-aggressive way of trying to get back at Jesus. Kind of like an epic choke slam, though, really, is what happens in the midst of all this. Like, every time they come after him, every time they come after him, it's like he just grabs them. Like WWE wrestling. So I always see in my head. 
I see the Undertaker, like giving him a fat choke slam right in the middle of the ring and then walking out with his fist in the air. Jesus, the victor, right? And in short, every plan that the religious leaders brought against Jesus as they tried to destroy him failed epically. They needed some extra help, right? They couldn't do this on their own. That's when Luke tells us that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And you want to wonder, ever wonder why you and I struggle so much with either A, living as a member of the family of God, living as a son or daughter of God, why we struggle so much to just stay there, why we often follow these other well-worn paths, or we treat Jesus like our enemy, ever wonder why? Satanic influence. Satan, the deceiver, has been opposed to Christ since the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of all time, really. Luke tells us that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And the religious leaders who planned to murder Jesus, what they needed was they needed an insider, right? They needed an insider that was willing to betray his master and his Lord. And they also needed the supernatural help from the pit of hell is what they needed. These are the two things that they needed. And in the person of Judas, the betrayer, and under the influence of Satan, the liar and the schemer, the scriptures tell us that Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. There is no truth in him whatsoever. Whenever I get into a situation where I realize there's deception and deceivery and lying and betrayal at play, I instantly know this is a work of Satan. This is not a work of my Father in heaven. And yet... And yet, our Father in Heaven is sovereign. He's got His plan happening in the midst of all this, right? All of the evilness, all of the horror in this life that we either A, cause or have caused upon us. God takes those horrific things and in the working of His own plan of redemption and salvation, works them out for the good of those who are called by His name and for His own glory. Ever face betrayal? Face rejection? I think of this as, as somebody that is closely intimate with you. This is like a wife or a husband or a close brother or a sister or a friend or a family member. Betrays you, wounds you, stabs you, rejects you. This is, what, this is what Judas is engaged in. 
I tell you, when somebody betrays me, you know what I want to do is I want to get my AK out of my gun cabinet, even though I don't actually have one. If I had one, I'd want to get my AK out of my gun cabinet. I want to get one of my handguns, and I want to go take some people out, right? That's the feeling I get inside. You know what that's called? That's called hate and bitterness and anger and wrath and unforgiveness. That's called sin. That's my plan. Jesus' plan is not an AK. Jesus' plan is a cross for his enemies. This is what you and I need to learn from this picture of Christ is his deep, never-ending, unashamed love for you and for me and even for Judas. Because when Jesus goes and dies on that cross, he dies for Judas as well. Amen. Isn't that some motivation for how you and I relate to one another? I think of that for, for those of you that are going through the Porterbrook um, Gospel Relationship Study right now. And this is the motivator. It's the cross of Christ. How can you deal with the marriage that is falling apart? How can you deal with a brother who has stabbed you in the back? How can you deal with a family member who talks trash about you? How can you deal with these things? I'll tell you, the only way you ever will deal with it is with the cross of Christ. When you get your eye locked on the cross of Christ and what he did for you in light of your own predetermined plan of sin and war against him, when you keep your eyes there instead of on the other person, you will continue to persevere. You will not tap out. You will not give up. And the reason why is because Jesus never tapped out or gave up on you and me. Such a beautiful picture. And the religious leaders found co-conspirators in their murderous plot in Judas and Satan. Luke goes on to say that the religious leaders were glad. They were glad. You catch that? They were glad. They were happy. They were joyful. I'm happy. I'm feeling good. I got sunshine in a bag. I love that song, by the way. Right? This is the tune that the religious leaders were singing about their murderous plan to kill Jesus. This is what brought them pleasure. Think about the things that bring you pleasure. Honorable things or dishonorable things? The dishonorable things that you plan to bring you pleasure, that is an act of war against the Savior who loved you and gave himself upon a cross for you. This is a picture of grace. This is a picture of grace. How could we not want to embrace that and extend that to others? These religious leaders were glad and agreed to give him money. So Judas consented catch this phrase too he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd he sought an opportunity i want you to think back to when jesus was being tempted by satan you might go back and you might read it in the gospel of luke sometime but after tempting jesus and after jesus made it through that test luke tells us that satan leaves him waiting for an opportune time this was that opportune time. Same language, Luke uses it. Same exact phrase. The opportune time that Satan had been looking for, scheming to get out, planning to get out for a long, long time. This was that opportune time. The opportunity arose. Satan took it and so did Judas. And so Judas slithers away from this meeting of betrayal and sin and rejection, and war against his maker. A lover of his soul slithers out of that meeting. Probably glad too because he was getting ready to make a bank. Right? 
His religious leaders were glad because their plan was finally coming together. People who were supposed to be godly were actually planning to kill the Son of God in partnership with one of Jesus' closest and most trusted disciples. This is what Luke is painting a picture of for us. And because that plan was coming together, they were freaking stoked about it. Satan had been murderously sneaking around for thousands of years. Since before the world was created, you might say. But especially for the last three years or so now. Been murderously sneaking around. Seeking his opportunity. To strike out at Jesus in this deadly blow through the betrayal of a close friend and the pride-filled jealousy of the religious elite. This is the conspiracy. This is the plan that the scribes and the Pharisees and Satan and Judas were executing. They laid their plans out on the table and they were following them step by step. Every one of these characters in this plot wanted something so bad that they conspired together to murder the Son of God. One writer says this, he says, once we decide, listen, once we decide that we want something more than we already have, we start thinking about ways to get it. And the more that desire grows, the more tempted we are to get what we want in ways that do not please God or depend on His providence. Listen, you may be seeking after a good thing, but when that good thing has become the only thing that you want in life and you no longer find your joy and your hope in Christ, that thing has become your master and you have now sought and planned and schemed to make war against God in your pursuit of even something that is good in the place of God as your master. And yet, and yet, in the midst of that, Christ still has his plan. And he still followed that plan. And nothing stopped him from pursuing that plan. Nothing stopped him eons ago from sitting at a table with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Right, All three of them. Nothing stopped the three of them from sitting there and taking your picture, your Polaroid, and sticking it in his pocket and making his list. And then coming to earth to die on that cross for you. He set his face towards this place. Though we lived as his enemies, he loved us. This commentator goes on to say, Unfortunately, there is more than a little bit of the betrayer in all of us. These characters in this plot, Satan, Judas, scribes, Pharisees, they all wanted something so bad that they were completely blinded by it. Completely blinded by it. Jesus had spoken the truth to them so many times. And it was as though there were veils over their eyes. Imagine the patience of God in these moments. Imagine the patience of Jesus as he sits there knowing these people are going to betray me, reject me, and murder me. And yet I'm going to speak the truth to them lovingly, sometimes confrontationally and harshly, I think. Honestly, as I read Jesus. The patience of God to continue speaking that word of truth and correction and encouragement from the gospel to them. What a picture. These people wanted 
They wanted something so bad that they would stop at nothing to get it. You think about this, Satan wanted to dethrone Jesus and put himself on the throne. Isn't this what we struggle with? Is wanting to be in charge, wanting to be in control, wanting to map it all out ourselves, wanting to have what we want now at the sake of dethroning Christ and putting ourselves on that throne instead. This is what Satan wanted. Wanted to dethrone Christ and put himself on the throne. The religious leaders wanted to silence Jesus. They wanted to silence his word. His word was like arrows to their heart instead of comfort. It was like arrows to enemies rather than comfort to sons and daughters. They wanted to silence him and they wanted to regain their influence, their power, their control over Israel. Judas wanted to strengthen his financial position, I think, so that he would no longer be numbered with the 12, which, by the way, I think was probably the poorest ministry team that's ever lived. That's just what I think as I read the story. I don't think Judas can handle it. And the priests and the scribes and Satan and Judas, they all made their plans, right? We all make our plans. The questions that you and I have got to ask ourselves, as I said before, and here I say it again, the question that you and I have to ask are what do our plans reveal about what we really want? What do your plans reveal about the condition of your heart? How do your plans bring honor or dishonor to the Lord? And Luke has just described how the priests and the scribes have made their plans. It described how Satan and Judas have made their plans. And now Luke says this, verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Even though there was this co-conspiracy between the scribes and, and the priests, and Satan and Judas, even though there was this co-conspiracy between these people, the proud religious leaders, the betrayer, the deceiver, even though there was this massive coalition, so to speak, that had this massive plan that was laid out. We're trying to murder and put to death the Son of God. Even though this was all happening, what Jesus was doing was keeping his eyes focused on the message of the cross. He was making preparations for his plan of redemption to continue unfolding. It was going to continue to unfold with the celebration of the Passover feast. And the celebration of the Passover feast was quite simply this annual feast that would take place that would continuously remind God's people of his salvation and redemption of them previously. So if you look in the book of Exodus, you'll see this happening. When the angel of death comes, Moses instructed the people to place blood on the doorposts of their homes. And if that blood was there, angel of death would pass over. You know what's coming for each of you and I in our sinful state without Christ? The angel of death. Paul makes it very clear that the payment for our sin, the paycheck that you and I work so hard for when we follow our predetermined plans of sinful activity based upon our sinful desires, 
That paycheck is death. Death comes for everybody. Physical death. And then for those of us that are apart from Christ and have no hope, there's a second death, spiritual death. It's that one in which you and I are forever separated from all that is good in God. And yet from the beginning, God provided a way of escape. A way in which you and I could get out of the burning house that's crumbling around us. And that plan that he put in place was no less than him coming in the flesh in the form of God the Son, Jesus himself, as our sacrificial lamb so that when his blood was spilled, our sins would be washed white as snow so that our sins would be cast as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. So that we would know the heights and the depths and the breadth and the width of God's love. So that we could move from being in enmity with God, His enemies, and move into being the family of God, His sons and His daughters, called by His name, lavished under His love. Though we were the betrayers, He called us sons and daughters. He gave you and I new names if you have here and you trusted in Him. Your name is son or daughter of the king. This, this is what Jesus is getting ready to celebrate. Feast of the Passover. Feast of unleavened bread. It's to remind Israel and to really remind us of our need for God. It's to remind us of the ways that he has provided salvation for us. And it's meant to cause us to look forward and to recognize the Messiah. So Jesus sends Peter, Luke tells us, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. You might notice this in these last few verses, the word prepared is, is there four times. Prepared. God prepared a way of escape for you and I in the work of Jesus. In the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Prepared. Planned. Sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? This is interesting. What this tells me is that none of the rest of the disciples knew where Jesus was planning to have this Passover feast. Why don't you think about what's going on? Satan the schemer and liar. Judas the betrayer. And doing their co-conspiracy in the background, right? So Jesus somehow had found a way to set this thing up. So they could have their Passover feast without Judas or the other religious leaders knowing where he was going to have it. Because this feast was so important, right? Even Peter and John didn't know. That's why they asked, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, now think about this for a minute. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. I mean, that, that sounds kind of cloak and daggerish, doesn't it? A little bit cloak and dagger. Like when you see the guy with the sign on the wall. And, da, 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 da. and it really is. Because in Jewish culture, in Israel, Israelite culture, the women would carry those big jugs of water on their head. A, a man would not be caught dead doing that. <laughs> so for a man to be carrying a big jar of water on his head would be a pretty easy sign for Peter and John to see. I have no idea why the dude was carrying a jug of water on his head. Nobody explains that. 
All I know is this was the sign they were to look for. Maybe Jesus, when he was spending time in the temple preaching, maybe he found somebody he knew he, he, knew he could trust. And he was like, hey man, uh, we need to do this Passover feast thing, so please keep it on the down low. And I'm going to send my boys, Peter and John, they're going to come over, they're going to talk to you, and we're going we're gonna to do this thing. So, so just be on the watch out for them. Maybe that's the way it went down. Either way, Jesus planned this thing out because with God, nothing happens by mistake. We think about this. Nothing happens by mistake. There are some of you that are sitting here and you think that you are a mistake. You are not a mistake. That's the message I want to preach to you. You are not a mistake. God planned meticulously from before the very foundations of the world for you. I'm going to say it over and over and over again. The reason why is because we need to hear this preached over and over and over again to our hearts. You are not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. He makes plans. And you were included in it as if you're sitting here and you're hearing this message. You were included in the hearing of the preaching of the gospel, which means you have the opportunity to respond. You're not a mistake. You're part of a plan that's much bigger than you. And that plan was executed by a loving Father in heaven who wants to adopt you and make you a part of His family. It's a great picture, isn't it? Not a mistake. Planned all the way down to the very details of somebody holding a glass of water on their head. <laughs> and he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, already taken care of, ready to go. Plan executed. You just go be a part of that plan, guys. It's a picture of, of Jesus saying to his disciples, as minuscule as it may seem, and as minuscule as the threat as this may seem, man, it's a picture of God sending his disciples, even early on like this, to go and to trust in the fact that God has prepared and furnished what we need to celebrate in the gospel together as a family. You'll find up a room furnished. Prepare it there. <coughs> and they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Jesus is preparing or planning to celebrate this Passover feast. And what I, I like to call it the salvation feast. That's what I like to call it. It's a salvation feast. Because it's a, it's a celebration of God's redeeming work of salvation for us on the cross of Christ. Jesus knew where his journey was leading him. And, and, and part of his plan was to mark, listen, to mark the hearts and the minds and the souls of his disciples with a physical object lesson so that everything would become clear at the horror of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb. And that object lesson would be the Passover feast where he broke bread in two and where he poured wine into a cup and then where he washed his disciples' feet and where he confronted the betrayer face to face. And he said, by the way, somebody here is going to betray me. And yet I go to the cross to serve and to love. He's going to mark the minds of his. How else could his disciples be willing to give their lives so brutally and so horrifically for him had they not experienced this tangibly this way? The question for you and I is this. Have you experienced Christ? 
in such tangible ways that your heart, your mind, and your soul have been indefinitely, radically transformed. Because Jesus put a plan together so that you could experience Him, not just from the words of a preacher, but also through the actions of a community called the church around you. Jesus did this. He put this plan together for you and for I, for all who would become His disciples. Jesus is literally planning a gospel community experience for His disciples. That's what He's doing. He's not just like planning another great Bible study to get together and open up a book. He is planning an experience in the presence of Christ so that his disciples would yearn and long and desire Christ more than anything else. He knew that his enemies were planning to finally succeed in their murderous plot, so he, he creates this experience. One author says this, says Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what Judas wanted to do to him and what the devil was trying to do, but he also knew what he was going to do. His preparations for our salvation were underway. Already Jesus was moving towards the cross. And catch this last sentence. This is freaking money. Listen to this. He was determined. He was as determined as Satan that he would die. He was as determined as Satan that he would die. If that doesn't jack you up, I don't know what's wrong with you. Come on, really, right? Like, like he was as determined as Satan was that he was going to die. <sighs> Jesus' plan all along, his plan all along was to come to this earth, was to come to this sin-soaked earth. So he could run this rescue mission within the art of hell by giving his life willingly into the hands of his enemies. There's not one of us in this room that wants to willingly give ourselves into the hands of our enemies. Come on. We think we have enemies because somebody says something bad about us on Facebook. <laughs> right? Can you willingly give yourself into the hands of that person? Plans of Christ's enemies meet at the cross. The plans of Christ's enemies intersect with Christ's plans for redemption. All plans meet at one place, and that crossroads is the cross, no pun intended. They all intersect at the same place. The cross where Christ's life was willingly given as a ransom for your sins and my sins. The place where his body was ripped and shredded and broken into in our place so that you and I wouldn't have to face that penalty. That place where that happened is the same place where all of the horrific, most evil plans in the world met. They met that day at the cross. All the horrific things done against you, those plans were on the cross that day. All the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. That's not just the sins you have committed, but the sins that have been committed against you. 
The shame, the guilt, the horror, the depression, the despair, it's all dead at the cross because Jesus beats Satan, sin, and the grave. He beats the indwelling presence of sin. He beats the penalty of sin. And he beats, thank God, the power of sin over our lives. You and I no longer have to walk in bondage to those things we can be free because Jesus won because all those things meet at the cross. The cross is the message that I want to proclaim to you tonight because that's where all of our plans meet. Jesus' response to all the evil plans made against him was simply to follow his carefully premeditated, predetermined plan that went back to before the very foundations of the world. His plan in the face of demonically Influenced plans of betrayal and murder was to give himself in death, not just for you and me, as I said earlier, but also for those who laid their evil plans against him. This is a majestic picture of the Savior that we have in Christ Jesus. The priests and the scribes and Satan and Judas, man, they all made their plans. We all make our plans. The questions that you and I have to wrestle with so what do our plans reveal about what we really want? What do our plans reveal about the condition of our hearts? How do our plans bring honor or dishonor to the Lord? As I wrap this up, I want you to listen to one last comment. I found comments replete on this passage as I studied. I'm so thankful for my time studying as a pastor. I just want to tell you guys that. Like, what... What an amazing privilege I have to study throughout the hours of the week and then to come and to preach in our midst. Not just to preach a word of challenge and encouragement to you, but to also receive it myself. This is an uncanny calling to not only be the bearer of a message, but to also be the receptor of that message in the moment. I cannot tell you how blessed I am to be in that place. Listen to this quote. When Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders got what they wanted. Judas got what he bargained for. And Satan got what he'd been scheming to get since the day God made the world. Only none of them, none of them got what they thought they were getting. For at the place where the conspiracy ended, at the cross... The counter-conspiracy was beginning to bring salvation. Unlike Satan, Jesus knew what his death by crucifixion would accomplish. He knew that it would be the death of the devil himself and the death of sin for everyone who trusts in him. Not to mention the death of death for everyone who believes in the cross and the empty tomb. What a fantastic picture we have in Christ. This is our Messiah. This is our King. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is the one who came and followed this plan to ransom you and I. What will you do now when you realize that all your best laid plans intersect with the plans of Christ at the cross? Let me close some prayers. Our music team comes. Father, I thank you for this message of hope and encouragement. 
this reminder, this great reminder that, that you have followed this plan of salvation and redemption on our behalf so that your Father could be glorified. Lord, I pray for any who are in this room who walked in struggling, discouraged, distraught, distracted. For any who were maybe coming under the influence of Satan the deceiver and liar. God, I pray that you would set them free. Lord, I pray in the next few moments as we close in worship and prayer and communion that you would draw our attention coming out of the preaching of the cross of Christ into this closing song and that you would keep our eyes focused on the cross where Jesus paid it all for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We will close in communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion, um, but you do need to be a Christian. So we just ask that if you do come and participate in communion, that you come to that place where you've trusted in Christ. It doesn't mean that you prayed some weird seance sinner's prayer up front with some pastor. It simply means that you come to that place where you recognize and realize and admit that you, just like me and every one of us, are sinful, broken creatures who need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ. It doesn't mean that your life is perfect. It means that you admit that it's not perfect and that it's not going to be perfect until you get to heaven to be with your Savior. And that in this moment, as you walk through this life, you're trusting, continuing to trust in the shed blood and the broken body of Christ to continue that work of transformation and salvation in you. That's what that means. So if, if that's you here, you trust in Christ, and we invite you to partake in communion here in a few minutes. There'll be two of us near the front to serve you those elements. You can use these center aisles, then exit out back around, back to your seats. Um, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not someone who's trusted in Christ, I want to be really sensitive to you. Uh, I just want to say don't take communion simply because if to do so would just be some strange like religious thing, you're just putting a face on and pretending and faking it anyways, we don't want that. Um, we'd much rather spend some time talking to you, praying with you, if you're ready. And if you're not ready, that's fine too. Like we're so happy you're here, glad you're here, and uh, we'd love to pray with you and talk with you if that's you. Um, otherwise, man, let's all stand together. Uh, we'll participate in communion as you're able. Close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be a few of us here for that. Thanks for letting me preach, guys. Love you a ton. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.